Hello, and welcome to the first episode of the Preclinical Clinical Podcast, where we go through clinical cases designed for students in their preclinical years. I'm your host, Sam, and I'm here with our other host, Kevin. Hello. We're both fourth year med students who are going into child neurology. On today's episode, we're going to talk about a 67 year old male who presents with a chief complaint of dizziness. Kevin, take us through your thoughts on this presentation. Okay, so when I first hear about a patient with dizziness, the first thing I want to ask them is what do they mean by dizziness? Do they mean vertigo, like the room is spinning, or lightheaded, like they feel faint, like what happens when you get up a little bit too fast? Lightheadedness is more commonly cardiopulmonary in nature and less likely neuro, whereas vertigo is more likely to be neurologic. The second thing I want to think about is the timeline, right? Is this a hyperacute problem? Is it sudden onset? Is it acute or is it chronic? Because those make me think of three different things. So for hyperacute, I think of things like a stroke or an artery dissection. Um, for acute, I think of something like BPPV, benign paroxysmal positional vertigo, uh, Meniere's disease. It could be increased ICP if there's a headache involved. Um, and then for chronic, I think of something more slow-growing, whether that's a mass, like in the cerebellum or on a peripheral nerve, like a vestibular schwannoma or something like that. And for any neuro problem, the first step is always localization. So from top down, we can have the cortex, subcortex, cerebellum, brainstem, spinal cord, nerve roots, peripheral nerves, neuromuscular junction, and muscles. So when thinking about localization, where can dizziness localize? Well, you can have central, if this is vertigo, you can have central vertigo or peripheral vertigo. Um, and you want to think about central vertigo as in brainstem and up, and then peripheral being the vestibular apparatus like the otolith organs and semicircular canals, cranial nerve 8. Um, and then once you get to central, you get vestibular nucleus, um, and the cerebellum could be involved too. That's more of a central problem. So now let's talk about our differential diagnosis. You want to figure this out before you go to see the patient. That way, when you're in the room, you know what to ask and to look for. So when I think through a differential, the first things that I think about are things that are potentially life-threatening. Um, so for this patient, that would be things like stroke, um, a mass in the brain, especially in the posterior fossa. Um, and then I would think about other things. I always think about medications. Is it an ototoxicity? Any medication that can cause ototoxicity um, that can cause vertigo. It could be a vestibular neuritis or a labyrinthitis. Um, I could be BPPV, like I mentioned before, or Meniere disease. Um, and another thing on my differential here is Ramsey-Hunt disease, which is where VZV um, infects the face and then involves the nerves around it. Okay, so next step is the history. You see the patient in the ED, and he gives you his HPI. Two hours ago, he was eating dinner with his family when he had the sudden onset that the room was spinning. He stumbled to go lie down, and his family noticed some eyelid drooping. He's had the persistent sensation of vertigo ever since then with one episode of vomiting. You find him laying with his eyes closed in the emergency room. He also started hiccuping about 30 minutes ago. He's speaking normally with no headache. There's no history of trauma, and he had an upper respiratory symptoms for the past three days that resolved with some cold meds. For past medical history and meds, he has hypertension. He's taking lisinopril and hydrochlorothiazide. He has dyslipidemia on atorvastatin. He has type 2 diabetes on metformin. He has paroxysmal AFib, not taking any medications, and he has GERD, which he takes omeprazole for. And finally, he has a history of migraines, which he takes sumatriptan as needed. For his surgical history, he had an umbilical hernia repair eight years ago. For social history, 
He drinks about one to two beers per night and sometimes more on the weekends. He's a former one-pack-per-day smoker but quit five years ago, and he denies any recreational drug use. For family history, it's notable for some hypertension, type 2 diabetes, and his father had colon cancer diagnosed at age 72. Great. Thanks, Sam. So the first thing that jumps out to me is the sudden onset nature of this vertigo. He was eating dinner two hours ago, and then all of a sudden he started to have vertigo. So that puts me um, more on the path of those hyperacute things that I was mentioning earlier, whether it's a stroke or an artery dissection, anything like that, and less likely in those chronic categories. It could be acute. Um, so those are, that's it kind of ranks my differential that way. Um, it's also been persistent, right? So it's less likely to be something like BPPV because it's been going on for a long time. Um, and then stumbling to go lie down is something else that jumped out to me. So that brings me more in the ataxia category, right? If you, if you feel like the room is spinning constantly, it's hard for you to get your balance and figure out where you're going. And then the eyelid drooping is something else that jumped out to me. That's a focal neurologic deficit, and any focal neurologic deficit is something that you want to pay attention to. Something else that's like, you know, plus or minus is the hiccups. That can be something, the fact that he got vertigo when he was eating dinner, and it could be like preceding vomiting, or it can be neurologic in nature. It can localize to some place like the nucleus accumbens, and there's a lot of areas um, in the neuraxis that can cause hiccups. Great. So with all that in mind, let's run through our differential again. Okay. So the first thing I talked about was stroke, um, and that's highest on my differential right now, considering his vascular risk factors of hypertension, diabetes, AFib, dyslipidemia. Um, he also has a history of migraines, so that's kind of up there still as well, because migraines is a big stroke mimic. Um, we think about migraines as kind of this outpatient problem, but there's a lot of times, you, as you will see on your stroke rotation, that someone comes in concerned for stroke, um, and it just happens to be a migraine. Other thing that I'm thinking of is this vestibular neuritis. Um, he has a history of an upper respiratory infection, and that can predispose vestibular neuritis or inflammation of the vestibular nerve in a lot of patients. Um, and that fits with the vertigo and ataxia. I think mass is, is much less likely. It's too acute of a presentation, um, so I don't think it's as high. Um, same thing with benign paroxysmal positional vertigo, or BPPV. Um, those attacks don't usually last hours. Um, so it's less likely that. Meniere disease can last hours. Um, it would be atypical for him to present this late. Usually it's like 20s to 40s where patients present, um, but it could be that, although he hasn't said anything about tinnitus or hearing loss, um, so less likely that as well. He's not on any medications um, that are ototoxic, so it's less likely that. And Ramsey-Hunt syndrome usually comes with facial paralysis, um, which we're not seeing here. Okay, so for our next step, what do we want to look for on physical exam? So, again, concern for stroke, we have one focal neurologic deficit with um, the eyelid drooping, and so you want to look at any other focal neurologic deficits. You want to make sure that he's not having any weakness, there's no sensory loss, and with the eyelid drooping, you want to do a full cranial nerve exam. Um, again, he's having a problem of vertigo, the room spinning, so we want to make sure there's no hearing difficulty um, as well as any cerebellar symptoms like ataxia, which he may have, um, dysmetria, and I'd want to get a Romberg on him as well. Okay, so for his physical exam, for his vitals, his blood pressure is 164 over 102, heart rate is 98, temp is 36.7, and respiratory rate is 18. On general exam, we'll just go through that quick. He has a normal exam. His lungs, heart, and abdomen all sound good. On mental status exam, he's alert and oriented times three. He's in some distress, but able to hold conversation with normal speech, although he is pausing. His mood and affect are appropriate. Moving on to cranial nerve exam. 
He has left ptosis, a constricted left pupil that's minimally reactive. Visual fields are full. Versions are intact without nystagmus. Facial sensation is normal to light touch. There is decreased sensation to pinprick on the left side. No facial droop, and he has a symmetrical smile. Hearing is intact on both sides. Weber test doesn't localize to one side. And Renee shows air greater than bone conduction. On head impulse test, that reveals a fixed gaze without nystagmus. His uvula and tongue are midline. On his motor exam, he has 5 out of 5 strength in bilateral upper and lower extremities and no pronator drift. For sensation, he has that decrease to pinprick on the left side of his face, as mentioned previously, but, fa- but the rest of his face sensation is normal to light touch. For his body, sensation to light touch is intact throughout. Vibratory sensation is intact on the upper extremities and decreased in both lower extremities. Pinprick is decreased on the right upper and the right lower extremity with normal pinprick sensation on the left side. For coordination, the finger to nose and heel to shin show dysmetria on the left and normal testing on the right. For rapid alternating movements, he's a little bit clumsy on the left but normal testing on the right. He sways to his left without eyes closed and he's unable to perform a full rhomberg. For reflexes, he's 2-plus in bilateral upper extremities and 1-plus in bilateral lower extremities. Babinski shows downgoing toes bilaterally. His gait is normal, narrow-based, and he sways a little bit to the left on tandem gait. Great. So his chief complaint was vertigo, and you heard about the head impulse test, and that's attempting to figure out whether the vertigo is central or peripheral in nature. So in the head impulse test, you have the patient fix on a target in the distance, and then you move their head quickly about 10 to 15 degrees one way, and you look for nystagmus. Normally, the patient should be able to fixate on that target when you move their head. It's abnormal if the eyes follow the head, and then they have to make a quick saccade back to the target that they were originally looking at. This abnormal test would indicate a deficient vestibular ocular reflex or a peripheral lesion. So thinking about localization of vertigo, we have the vestibular system is the main thing, right? So we have the otolith organs and the semicircular canal. Those send signals through the vestibular nerve, which joins the cochlear nerve, and then splits off into the vestibular nucleus in the lateral pons. Okay, that was some great localization of the vestibular system, Kevin. Why don't we go through the rest of his main findings? So he has that left ptosis. Okay, so for the left ptosis, right, there's two muscles that control the eyelid. We have the superior tarsal nerve, which is innervated by sympathetics, which start in the hypothalamus, go to the, through the brainstem to the cervical and thoracic spinal cord, go to the sympathetic chain ganglion, then it gives off sympathetic nerves that travel along the internal carotid artery, and then we have the ciliary nerve into the superior tarsal muscle for the sympathetics. The other muscle is the levator palpebrae muscle, which is innervated by the ocular motor nerve, or the cranial nerve 3. So that starts in the oculomotor nucleus in the central midbrain. Then we have the nerve that comes out of the ventral brainstem in between the superior cerebellar artery and the posterior cerebral artery near the PCOM, or the posterior communicating artery. Then it goes through the lateral cavernous sinus into the orbit and branches off into the levator palpebrae muscle. Okay, great. So left ptosis, sympathetics, or cranial nerve 3. What about that constricted left pupil? Right. So a constricted left pupil, or meiosis, can be antisympathetic or pro-parasympathetic. 
right? The sympathetics dilate the eyes. They take the same course as the sympathetics I mentioned before. They go to the long ciliary nerve and then to the dilator pupillae. So any compression along that could, pathway could cause meiosis. Or they could be pro-parasympathetic. And the most common cause of that would be parasympathomimetic drugs. But the parasympathetics here, although they run through cranial nerve 3, they start in the Edinger-Westfall nucleus in the lateral midbrain. Then they take the same course as the oculomotor nerve that I mentioned before, and they go to the pupillary sphincter muscle. Okay, so meiosis, we're thinking antisympathetic or pro-parasympathetic. He also had decreased facial pain sensation on the left. Right. So pain sensation is protopathic. I always think about protopathic, PT, being pain and temperature. So those nerves, they start in the periphery, right? They course through cranial nerve 5, then they go to the trigeminal ganglion, and then they go into the spinal trigeminal nucleus, right? So spinal for pain, spinal trigeminal nucleus, and that's in the lateral brainstem. And so you think about the rule of fours in neurology, right? Cranial nerves 1, 2, 3, and 4 go to the midbrain. 5, 6, 7, 8 are in the pons, and then 9, 10, 11, 12 are in the medulla. This one kind of breaks that rule because the spinal trigeminal nucleus is so long that it can be compression in the midbrain or the medulla. It doesn't necessarily have to be in the pons. So decreased pain sensation on left face, we're thinking cranial nerve 5. Right, left cranial nerve 5. So how about the decreased body pain sensation that he had on the right? So pain sensation, again, protopathic pain and temperature. And so in the body, that's the spinal thalamic tract. So it starts in the peripheral nerves, goes to the dorsal root ganglion, then it synapses in the dorsal horn, goes up Lissauer's tract, one to two spinal levels, then it decussates in the spinal cord in the anterior white commissure, right? The second nerve is always the one that decussates. So the spinal thalamic tract decussates in the spinal cord, anterior white commissure, then it goes up through the contralateral side, the lateral spinal thalamic tract in the spinal cord, then in the lateral brainstem, eventually synapsing on the ventral posterior lateral nucleus of the thalamus up until somatosensory cortex. So decreased pain sensation, we're thinking spinal thalamic tract. How about the impaired finger to nose and the decreased rapid alternating movements we saw? Right. So impaired finger to nose is called dysmetria, and the decreased rapid alternating movements is called dysdiaticokinesia. And so that was on the left side, so we're thinking on the left side of the spinal cerebellar tract, going through the cerebellar peduncle, into the cerebellum, and then any output. Anything that goes through the cerebellum is going to give you those symptoms of dysmetria and dysdiaticokinesia. Okay. What about the decreased vibration sense in his bilateral lower extremities? Right. So... Pain and temperature are protopathic. Everything else is epicritic, right? So for the epicritic, that's going to be vibration. That's the dorsal column medial lemniscus tract. So again, it's sensation, starts in peripheral nerves, go to the dorsal root ganglion, synapses in the dorsal horn. Here's where it differentiates. Now we're going to ascend in the ipsilateral fasciculus gracilis, because we're in the lowers. The uppers would be in the fasciculus cuneatus. Then we decussate in the inferior medulla, and it's going to go up through the medial lemniscus on the contralateral side. And as the medial lemniscus goes through the brainstem, it gets a little bit more lateral. Then it again goes to the VPL nucleus in the thalamus up until somatosensory cortex. So for decreased vibration, we're thinking epicritic. Yep. He also had decreased deep tendon reflexes in bilateral lower extremities. So... Reflex arc, again, starts with peripheral nerves. So we have the efferent peripheral nerves coming up into the dorsal root ganglion, 
they synapse in the spinal cord onto the lower motor neurons, directly onto the lower motor neurons, and then take peripheral nerves, motor neurons, to the muscles. And so the decreased deep tendon reflexes can be a problem with any of those things. It can also happen with diabetes, where you have a problem with the peripheral nerves, and sometimes normal aging just causes decreased deep tendon reflexes. So for those decreased deep tendon reflexes, we're going to think lower motor neuron or sensory nerves. And for the last notable physical exam finding was that left word ataxia, and that could be vestibular or cerebellar, as Kevin has already discussed. So Kevin just went over a lot of different things that could explain the different findings that we're seeing. But in medicine, what you want to try to do is to try to find one single thing that can explain all of these findings. And in neurology, we're looking for one single lesion that could explain it all. Right. So based on all the pathways that I just discussed at length, we have the brainstem seems to be the most common denominator in all of those, and specifically the lateral medulla. So we have the descending sympathetics in the lateral medulla that can take care of the ptosis and meiosis that we saw. We have the vestibular vestibular nucleus that can take care of the vertigo and ataxia that we saw. We have the spinal trigeminal nucleus that can take care of the ipsilateral decreased facial pain sensation. And then we have the lateral spinal thalamic tract, also in the lateral medulla, that can take care of that decreased contralateral body pain sensation that we saw. Now that leaves two findings that are still unexplained, the decreased vibration and the decreased detendon reflexes in bilateral lower extremities. So when you have an unexplained finding that doesn't necessarily mesh with the rest of the findings that you have, you want to think about, is there another thing that can explain those? And so for this patient, he has diabetes. And many patients with diabetes get peripheral neuropathy. And peripheral neuropathy can cause decreased vibration sensation and decreased deep tendon reflexes, particularly in the bilateral lower extremities before it goes up to the upper extremities. So that can explain that. Again, like I mentioned, normal aging can cause decreased deep tendon reflexes as well. So I think we have a pretty good explanation for those two findings, and I still would localize this to the lateral medulla in the brainstem. Wow, that was really well explained. Thank you, Kevin. Um, and for some tips, if you're like me and you are always looking for those buzzwords on exam, uh, the one to think about here would be cross-body findings. So there's those left facial um, findings with the right body findings. And when you see that, uh, in real life, it's usually the brainstem, but on an exam, it is almost always brainstem. So cross-body findings, brainstem. That's what you should be thinking. Right. And so with a lesion in the brainstem, specifically in the left lateral medulla, his vascular risk factors, and this hyperacuity of the presentation, I think that we have a stroke in the brainstem, again, in the left lateral medulla. So our workup doesn't end there. We now have to figure out why did this patient have a stroke? And the two common causes of stroke are ischemic stroke, and that could be thrombotic from atherosclerosis. It could be embolic from some sort of clot coming through, and we can have hemorrhagic stroke, which the most common cause is hypertension. And it sounds like he does have those risk factors for the ischemic stroke, but not really any risk factors for a hemorrhagic stroke. He's not on any blood thinners, right? Right, yeah. He's not on any blood thinners, and the most common cause of an embolic stroke is a cardioembolic stroke, and he has the number one risk factor for a cardioembolic stroke in AFib. And so in AFib, what happens is you're not contracting the atria as well as you can, and so you don't eject all the blood you have that left atrial appendage in your heart. And so if you're not flushing all the blood out of the atrium every time you squeeze, 
then you have this blood that is sitting in the left atrial appendage, and that can cause a clot in there, which is why we give blood thinners to patients with AFib. Well, he has AFib, and he's not on a blood thinner, so he probably had a clot in that left atrial appendage, and a piece of that broke off, went up through his vertebrals, and got stuck in the pica, or the posterior inferior cerebellar artery. More on that later. So let's jump from Kevin's classroom over here back to the patient in the ED. You have uh, done all this thinking on the spot because you're prepared because of this podcast. Your next step is, okay, probably has a stroke, as Kevin explained. We need to order some tests and imaging. What are you going to order, Kevin? All right. So first step, and anybody with a stroke, this should be a reflex. What's the first test you order? Non-contrast CT. You'll also hear it called a dry CT, a dry head CT on the wards, but we want a non-contrast CT. And why do we want that? We want to make sure that there's no blood in the brain. Strokes aren't always seen on CT, but if there's blood in the brain, you'll find it on CT. The next couple things I'd want is a CBC and BMP. They're in the emergency department. They're probably going to get that anyway. Um, The CBC will figure out if we have any anemia going on or a coagulopathy. If there's any thrombocytopenia, we'll see that on a CBC. And then electrolyte abnormalities can do weird things in the brain. Um, So the BMP is probably in order there as well. Okay, great job with that. We ordered all those tests and imaging, and what we found on the non-contrast CT, nothing. It was normal. On the CBC and the BMP, also normal. Now what do you want to do? All right. So now that we know that the non-contrast CT is normal, we know that there's no blood in the brain, CBC and BMP is normal. Next thing I want to do is I want to get a CT angiogram of the head and neck to see if there's a blockage in the artery or if there's a vertebral dissection of some sort, meaning a dissection in the vertebral artery. So when you order a test, you always want to think, what are you going to find and what are you going to do about it, right? When you're ordering imaging, you always want to think, okay, what am I going to find on this imaging? What am I going to look for? And so for a CT angiogram, we want to make sure we're looking for a clot or a cutoff in the contrast. And so you want to think about the vascular territories. We talked about we're in the lateral medulla, And like I mentioned before, that is supplied by the posterior inferior cerebellar artery. That's the lateral medulla. The medial medulla is supplied by the anterior spinal artery. And while we're going through brainstem perfusion, we'll talk about the midbrain is supplied by the posterior cerebellar artery. That's both the medial and the lateral midbrain. The pons is supplied, the medial side is supplied by the basilar artery. And I remember that because the basal artery literally runs right over the belly of the pons. And then the lateral side is the anterior inferior cerebellar artery. The way I remember that is that the pica does lateral medulla, and then you just go one step up to get the ica. You hear a lot about posterior circulation stroke or anterior circulation stroke. This patient, what we're looking for is a posterior circulation stroke. That means the circulation that's coming from the vertebral arteries. That's in the posterior neck. In the anterior neck, we have the internal carotid arteries, and so that would be an anterior circulation stroke. So I'm getting a CTA. I am looking for a cutoff in the posterior circulation, and more specifically in the posterior inferior cerebellar artery. So we got that CTA, and Kevin was right. It shows a complete occlusion of the left pica, suggesting an embolic stroke. And like I mentioned before, he's got all of the perfect risk factors, especially untreated AFib for an embolic stroke. Doesn't surprise me at all. So now that you have your diagnosis, we want to think about what we're going to do to treat this. For timing purposes of this podcast, we won't cover everything about stroke treatment here, but Kevin's going to talk about the big things to consider. 
All right, so for stroke treatment, there unfortunately isn't really a lot of treatments for stroke. Um, the reason that you got the non-contrast CT is to make sure there wasn't blood in the brain. If there's no blood in the brain, then you can consider giving TPA or doing a thrombectomy. So those are two possible treatments. For TPA, it's very nuanced. If you do a stroke rotation, you'll learn all of the indications and contraindications to TPA, and it's a huge long laundry list. But for you right now, the big thing to know is that if it's less than 4.5 hours since the last known well, and there's no evidence of intracranial hemorrhage, which the dry CT head will show you, then you can consider giving TPA. If those things are not true, you can't even consider it. So the last known well is an important thing to get during stroke. This is kind of the last teaching point. Um, when a patient comes in and they have stroke, the two things you have to do are non-contrast non CT and figure out their last known well, which is the symptom onset. A lot of patients will wake up with stroke symptoms, and then their last known well is before they went to bed. So make sure that you know the last known well if you have a patient with a stroke. Then there's a lot of long-term treatment and management that we definitely don't have time to go through here. But if you rotate on red team or stroke consult, you can learn all about it then. Okay. Thanks, Kevin. So to recap and just go over some of his amazing teaching points... One, dizziness is a common presenting symptom, but you have to make sure that you figure out, is it vertigo-type dizziness where we're going to be thinking more of a neuro thing happening, or is it more lightheadedness where we would have to search for some type of cardio uh, event happening? And if you find that it is vertigo, Kevin's next point was that you have to determine whether it's central versus peripheral. Another important thing was that you need to know what to look for on the physical exam and have a differential in your head before heading into that room. Next is the most important thing for a neuro, you need to localize the lesion. You want to find one unifying lesion that explains most, if not all, of the symptoms that your patient is having. And then finally, you want to know what imaging is best for what you are looking for in your patient and you wanna to try to predict what you will see on that imaging before you're even ordering the test. That way you're not just ordering all of these different tests, not knowing what you're looking for. You wanna have all of this in mind before taking that next step. Great, so that's all the clinical pearls. Now you wanna know what about an exam, whether it's step one, an MBB exam, how do I tackle a problem where I see neurodeficits? So this is kind of a lengthy process. It's one that I use, and if I have time, I try to do it all. You get better at it as you go through. But the first thing that you should do, number one, is write down all of the deficits, right? So we had the leptosis, we had the vertigo, we had the decreased pinprick. Write them all down on one side of the paper. Then on the next side of the paper, you want to determine the pathway for each deficit, right? It doesn't have to be too intensive. You could just write spinal thalamic tract. If you know where the spinal thalamic tract goes, then that's all you have to write down. So write down all of those pathways next to the deficits. Then you want to look at your list. Is there one place on the list that explains all of these symptoms? If that's the case, that's the answer. Okay, so that's it for today's case. Hopefully you all learned something to help you on test day and beyond. Please email ursmdpodcast at gmail.com with some feedback or suggestions for future podcast episodes. Thanks for listening. Thanks, guys. Good luck.